Welcome to the London First Baptist Church podcast. This is the Sunday morning service of October 23rd, 2022, from Pastor Brett Cottrell. Once again, welcome this morning. So we are going to be in two different passages of Scripture this morning as we continue our, our series on what it means to be a follower or a disciple of Jesus. This past week, and some of you may have heard of her, and some of you are going to be shocked that I mentioned this, that I even know who this person is, but you may have heard of someone named Taylor Swift. And uh, I told Angela I was going to use Taylor Swift as a sermon illustration this morning. She went, what? Said, That's for all of you who are under 40. Um, I'd, I'd say, I, I guess people know who Taylor Swift is, no matter what age they are. Taylor Swift, and you may have heard, she released a new album this week. Um, now, apparently, uh, I, I, this is all stuff I read. I, trust me, I do not follow Taylor Swift. I could not even tonight, this morning tell you two songs that she sings, but I know she's a big deal, all right? Now, she's been hinting at for apparently some months about a new release that came out this past week. She did so at the, some music awards a few months ago, and, and uh, from everything I've read, she is a master at teasing, hinting, dropping clues about something she's about to do, so much to the point that all those uh, fans of hers, and by the way, they're called Swifties. That's not, a, that's not a brand of broom or anything. That's, I'm sorry, I make fun of somebody there. Um, Swifties, they hang on her every word. They try to parse the things that she puts out there, and um, uh, they follow everything that she tries to talk about. Even these last few weeks, she was giving clues about her upcoming album, and uh, even to the point where she was uh, tweeting out letters that would give you hints to the song titles on her new album. Um, and uh, in the process, the build-up to all this, well, for, exa- for example, uh, her a previous album, she had 74 million views on her TikTok account anticipating the release of a brand new album. And she's done the same thing with this new one. In other words, people are hung up on every word that she says. They're anticipated, they're analyzed, so, we can, so they can all know what she's going to do next. If you're a Swifty, you hang out on Taylor's words. Well, perhaps even, not even perhaps, more than that, those who follow Christ who are disciples of Jesus, should be hanging on his every word. This morning we're talking about in the life of a disciple, the role of the Word of God in the life of a disciple. We're going to begin this morning, of our two passages, we're going to begin this morning in Luke chapter 24. Now what does it mean that we are going to be listening to or akin or or, or up on the Word of God? What, What is there about God's Word that is such a big deal? Well, from the very beginning... While you're turning to Luke, I'm going to reference Genesis chapter 1. From the very beginning when God created, how did God create? In the beginning, He created heaven and earth. And why did, how did He begin the creation process? He spoke a word, didn't He? He said, let there be light, and there was light. Creation spoke or began with a word. If we were to want to affirm this in the Gospel of John chapter 1, we are reminded that It uses that same word, word. In the beginning was the word. That is speaking about who Christ is. And that word was with God. That word was 
God, and all things came into being through him. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus is the Word. Back to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy eleven eighteen. God tells the people of Israel, You shall therefore take these words of mine to heart and to soul. You shall tie them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets on your forehead. John 14, 23, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. So we can already tell the Scripture that God himself deems his word something to be listened to, something that's powerful, something that's of vital importance. So our first question this morning as disciples of Jesus is this question. Was for Jesus, was God's word, was Scripture something that was important? If we were following him around, if we were to follow Jesus around like those 12 disciples did, would we have seen Scripture as something important in the life of Christ? Luke chapter 24, we're going to be reading in verse 25, and this, this of course, is following Jesus' resurrection. In fact, this is the day of his resurrection. This is Easter Sunday. These events take place. He's on the road to Emmaus. He's come across a couple of disciples, not the 12, but other disciples. And they are distraught. They're upset by the events of that weekend. They don't know about Jesus' resurrection just yet. Jesus said to them, foolish men and slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to come and to enter into his glory? Beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Let's just pause and pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, as we explore what it was that Jesus did with the scriptures, we explore what the scriptures have to tell us about themselves. Now we find in our own hearts the desire to treasure your word and to treat them as Christ did. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we read this first few verse, these, these few verses here in Luke chapter 24, what we see is this. And it gives us the description here in, in verse 27. It says, beginning with Moses. And if you want to know how the Jews thought about the, what we call today the Old Testament, they talked about the writings of Moses. And that for you and I would be the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They called it the Torah or the writings of Moses. So beginning with those five books of the Old Testament, it says they're running through the prophets. That's all those. That includes Isaiah, Jeremiah. It also includes like Malachi we read from earlier. And Jesus took them through. Man, this, you talk about a master class in Bible. As they walked down this road to Emmaus, Jesus took them through from Genesis to Malachi. And he said, all these scriptures do what? They point to Christ. They describe what he was there to do. They describe why he came. The wisdom, the history from Psalms and Proverbs and on, all these things point to Jesus. In other words, the Scripture, the Word of God, and specifically here in Luke 24, the Old Testament, and by the way, this will apply to the New Testament as well, the Scriptures are about Him, not, by the way, us. Now, there are things that we learn. There are things that we need to know. There are things that God will do in us and through us and for us through Scripture, but from Adam to Noah to the Tower of Babel, from the stories of Abraham and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea, all these things are about Christ, Him, not us. And by the way, Luke 24 is not the only place that Jesus refers to Scripture and has it dealing with Him. He quoted Scripture on 
uh, if you remember when Jesus, right after he was baptized, he goes out into the desert for 40 days and Satan tempts him. And how does Jesus respond to every temptation? He quotes Scripture. He's quoted Scripture in the Sermon on the Mount. He quoted Scripture with multiple times with conversations with the Pharisees and other scribes and other Jewish leaders. He quoted Scripture at the Last Supper. He quoted Scripture on the cross. I don't know if you knew about this. Those two famous things, of his famous sayings, two of them, why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is a quote from Psalm 22. When he said, um, let me get my reading glasses back out here again. When, when he said, into your hands I commit my spirit, that's a quote from the Psalms. So on the cross, Jesus was quoting Scripture. According to one professor at Liberty University, there are approximately 1,800 verses in the Gospels that record Jesus' spoken words, his conversations with people. Of those 1,800 verses, 180 of them, or 10%, are direct quotations of the Old Testament. So of all the words we have of Christ in the New Testament, 10% of them are Scripture quotations. Now let me ask you this, are 10% of your conversations on a daily basis Scripture quotations? Probably not. The point is, if 10% of your conversations are Scripture, is Scripture a big deal? Yes. For Scripture, for Jesus, Scripture was a big deal. And by the way, just a, just a note on the application of this idea about Scripture being about Christ. Since Scripture is about Jesus, I've heard the Bible described in many ways. I've even sometimes described it in various ways. I've heard the Bible described sometimes as God's rule book. Okay, I get that. There's, there's some truth to that. But ultimately, the Bible is not God's rule book for us because we're not the point of Scripture. The Scripture is, from Genesis to Revelation, about revealing who God is and what He's doing. That's what Scripture is. He is the author, but He's also the subject. Scripture is about Him. That means, as we're understanding Scripture, that everything points to, revolves around Him. These two guys on the road here in Luke 24, did they know Scripture? Did the disciples know Scripture? Did the Pharisees know Scripture? The truth is, yes. In fact, uh, it's probably more says more about us than it does them. Most of the disciples, Peter, James, John, uh, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, these two guys on the road to Damascus, they were taught the Hebrew Scriptures from a very early age. They, were, they memorized it. They knew it. They could quote you chapter and verse. They probably knew the Scripture better than most of us do. They were taught it in school. It's how they grew up. So they knew the words. And yet, they often let their experiences determine the truth of the word. So, for example, these two men walking on the road to Emmaus, they knew the prophets. They knew Moses' writings. They knew what those things said. They did not understand that they pointed to Messiah. They're walking along that road that morning, and what do they know? Well, all they know is this. This guy they chose to follow had been crucified, had been killed by the Roman authorities and by the religious leaders of their day, and everything they'd put their hope in was dashed. They were crushed. They were depressed. They were upset. They were confused because that's what their experience had led them to at that moment in time. And so they probably were, they probably were even to a certain degree wondering if they had missed something or if, they had, if maybe God was there. There's probably all kinds of questions. When you and I 
face the realities of this life, we do sometimes have days, maybe weeks, maybe even longer, when everything is so difficult, so rough, so hard, so confusing that we begin to wonder whether or not the Scripture is really true. If God's really there, if we have somehow been fooled or duped or some way. But here's the thing. When we understand that Scripture is not about us, but it's about God, then we can understand that our experience is not what interprets Scripture. Scripture is meant to interpret our experience. These two guys on the road to Emmaus, they are, they are confused and they're hurting and they're even a little upset. At one point earlier in the conversation, they tell Jesus, are you the only one who doesn't know what's going on around here? They are struck by how Jesus doesn't seem to get what's going on around them. And the truth is, they were the ones who had missed it. Their personal experience had been misunderstood. We talk about sometimes as Christians, our testimonies. That is our story of how we came to Christ. And I hope you have a testimony this morning. I hope that you have a story of an encounter when you heard the gospel and you knew that you needed to respond to it and you came to faith in Christ. You understood that you were a sinner, that Christ died for sinners, that he rose back to life to give sinners hope of a resurrection if they would place their faith in him. And I hope you've done that. I hope you have a testimony about someone sharing that information with you and you responding in faith. We need our testimonies, but let me, understand, let, me, let, me, let me share something with you. Your testimony does not validate Scripture. Scripture validates your testimony. It's the other way around. So often we approach our lives and we think, well, I, I don't see how that matches up, so I, maybe I've misunderstood Scripture. No, we've misunderstood our experience. It's about Him. Sometimes I've even asked this question at times in my younger days in a small group Bible study. I say, what does this passage mean to you? Or what does this mean to me? I hate to be cold and brutal about this, but what it means to me is irrelevant. The question is not what does Scripture mean to me. The question is this, what does Scripture mean? And then once I know what God means, then I can begin to figure out how I work into that. The Scripture is not about me. I'm not the object, I'm not the subject, He is. Regardless of how I feel or what my experience is, even on a, a given day. So these two disciples are on the way, are finding out through Jesus that everything they knew had been misunderstood. And that all these scriptures were pointing not to their own destiny to rule as the nation over the Romans, but in fact it was all these scriptures were pointing to what Christ was going to do, that he was going to suffer, that he was going to die, that he was going to resurrect, and that through that, God would do things throughout the entire world. That blew their mind, but he said, this is it. And look at it. And they saw it from Genesis to Malachi. So clearly, Jesus saw scripture as important. He spent all this time talking about it. Again, 1423 of the Gospel of John, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. We will dwell with him. Now, that's great. Cool. We got the, we got the Old Testament. We call the Old Testament. We know that's established Scripture. And I want you to go ahead and turn, if you will, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And as you're doing that, I want to read for you a couple other things. In 2 Peter, 
the Apostle Peter says this. While you're turning to 2 Timothy, I'm going to read from 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3, the Apostle Peter says this in verse 2. Well, verse 1 and 2. He says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So Peter's saying, listen, you, know, you need to, as believers, he's talking, Peter's writing, to not only know the Scriptures, and for them that's the Old Testament, but also to know what your Savior Christ said as given to you by the apostles. Well, that's things like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You say, well, wait a minute, Matthew wasn't, or uh, Mark wasn't one of the apostles. Well, no, but we know from pretty good evidence that Mark uh, was essentially taking notes from Peter. <laughs> In fact, one of the ways that we came to have a New Testament, one of the ways they would help determine those books that should be included in Scripture was, was it attached, as Peter said here, was it attached to an apostle? So that's why you have John and Matthew, Luke uh, interviewed all the apostles. We have his descriptions there. And these, these writings were confirmed to have been uh, sourced, if you will, from the original 12. This is also, by the way, we have Paul's writings because Paul was deemed to be an apostle of Christ because of his personal firsthand encounter with Christ, not only on the road to Damascus, but Paul talks about it elsewhere, him having some encounters with the risen Christ as well. So Paul was deemed to have, to have been an an apostle. In fact, Second Peter later on says the exact same thing. In chapter 3, which just was in verse 6, 15, uh, Peter says to this, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. In other words, Paul just lumped, or uh, Peter just lumped Paul's writings in with the rest of scripture. So we have, even in Second Peter, a confirmation about the, the content of the Gospels and the letters of Paul. Now, all that to be said, now, Second Timothy chapter 3. This may be a, a verse that you are uh, familiar with. In 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 16, All Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That phrase, Scripture is inspired by God, that, literally, that, that word inspired literally means to be God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. Now, there have been, through the centuries, so many who have tried to figure out what in the world does that mean that Scripture is God-breathed. There have been any number of theories about how God did that. Does that mean that God showed up in a room with Peter or with Paul or with Malachi or whoever and essentially showed up and just kind of dictated the letter? Does that mean that God somehow breathed in a breath through their ear? I don't know. It actually doesn't say what, that, what the technical aspects were. It just says that Scripture is breathed from God. By the way, what else in Scripture is breathed from God? Us. <laughs> the very life you and I have is breathed from God. That's how Adam was created. It's kind of the same idea. 
It's not defined, it's just described. I don't think God dictates a letter, so to speak. I think God, generally speaking, has worked through the personalities of the human beings that he's inspiring. So if you're listening, if you're reading Moses or Joshua or Paul or Mark, if you know the original languages, you will see that there are, there's personality in them. Uh, this isn't an exact analogy by any stretch of the imagination, but if you're listening to different pastors, we can teach the exact same Scripture. We might even teach the exact same thing, but you will see our personalities come out in slightly different ways than what we teach. Kind of the same idea. Uh, I, I do not mean to equate that with anything I'm saying being inspired in the sense of Scripture. Please don't misunderstand me. But God would use the people, the men he, he had to, to inspire the Scripture to. He would work through them. And we believe that these original writings as inspired by God were, in fact, without error. They are the words of God. They are the Word of God. Now, you might ask this morning, do we have those original copies of Matthew or Acts? And the answer, of course, is no. We were actually talking about this in my core class this morning. Some have asked, well, how can we, this Bible that we have to look at, how can we trust it? How can we know this is actually what God has for us? I want to borrow an illustration um, from a gentleman who uh, does this. And so the, I'm, I'm just going to read this illustration because I think it really, it really communicates it. He, said, he says this. He says, imagine that I have a son who is a student, and he contacts me in desperate need of some money to continue his schooling. After going to the bank and withdrawing $5,000, I decided to meet him on Wednesday at Starbucks on Main Street. I sent him the following text on my phone. I have the, the 5,000% you needed. Meet me at Starving on Main Street next Wednesday at 4. Now, you, you get the typos there, right? How many of you have typos when you text? And if you don't, how many of you have autocorrect make typos for you? Yeah, that, that's me. If you, get, if you ever get a text from me, I probably have retyped it five times before I hit send because I, I, my thumbs don't work with the buttons. So obviously he has had a couple of typos here. He says, unfortunately, my typing skills are less than perfect, and I've inserted a few typos. To make matters worse, the phone's autocorrected. So after texting me that he doesn't understand my instructions, I sent him another text. It says, I got the 5000 you needed. Meet me at Starbucks on Main Street next weakness at 4 o'clock. Whoops. He says, I try again. I got the 5,000 nerds you need. Or I got the 5,000 you need, your nerds. Meet me at Starbucks on Main Street next Wednesday at 4. Whoops, another typo. He says, my son thinks I'm pretty funny by now. But I just want to get it right. So I make another attempt. I got the 5,000 you needed. Meet me at Starbucks on Main Street next Wednesday at 4. You, you hear the typo again, right? Finally... I, get the, I got the 5,000 you needed. Meet me, at, meet me at Starbucks on Main Street. Now, there's an error in every single one of those, right? Now, guess what's going to happen? His son's going to show up at Starbucks next Wednesday on Main Street knowing there's 5,000 bucks, even though at no point did any of those things actually say that. How is he going to know that? Well, he can take the five texts and figure out what's being said, right? Well, this isn't an exact example. This is, to a certain degree, what we have done with Scripture. As of right now, there are over 24,000 fragments or manuscripts of just the New Testament alone. 
Now, granted, the New Testament itself is approximately 2,000 years old. But there are 24,000 partial manuscripts or full manuscripts of the New Testament, some of them dating back to within 50 to 70 years of the originals being written. Now, that may sound like a, a long time, but in ancient history science, that's, that's, actually, that's actually pretty close. The most documented or supported other ancient writing, if you would say that, how many of you all had to read the Iliad in, in high school or in college? The, you know, Homer's the Odyssey and the Iliad. The Iliad, as of right now, the last I read, has approximately 900 fragments or partial manuscripts of the originals. 900. 24,000. The Gettysburg Address, Lincoln's famous speech at the Battle of Gettysburg, only about 150 years ago, we have five copies of the Gettysburg Address, and actually all five of them are different from each other. They all have different texts. You add in the Old Testament and the numbers skyrocket. And one thing you'll do, and we don't have time to do all the research, to go through all the research, but I'll just, I'll put it this way. The similarities, there are, almost, there are no significant differences in these things. In other words, unless you want to throw out everything written before 1900 ever, by anybody, whether it be a president of the United States, whether it be the Magna Carta, whether it be any Roman history, whether it's Homer's writings or anything else. If you want to throw out the Bible, you have to throw out everything and say there's nothing we can know before 1900. The Bible is the most attested to, confirmed in content, writing, in history of all time, ever. It's short not only has God inspired it, He has made sure that it's been maintained for you and I to read today. We can have absolute trust in these Scriptures. And he says there in, in Timothy that this Scripture is profitable. I mean, it's useful. I mean, it's good. These are things that you can use for especially these purposes. He says this, profitable for teaching. That's what we're doing. This is the communication of basic truths. Facts, data. He says it's profitable for reproof. That is convicting. That's, that's refuting. When someone would argue against it or someone would say, that's not what it really says. Well, no, here's, here's what it says. It's, it's profitable for not just teaching the basics. It's also profitable for showing where things are wrong, where error has been made, what needs correcting. Now, it doesn't only just show us what needs to be corrected. It's actually also good for actually correcting those things. That's what that next part means. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. That word has the idea of taking something that's crooked and straightening it back out. This is what Scripture does. It's not just profitable for teaching, for, for reproof, and for correction. It's profitable, he says, for training in righteousness training, that process of shaping, if we, if we go through physical training, we're talking about the process of getting our mind and body in shape for a purpose. I met a few months ago a guy who told me he used to do triathlons. That guy's nuts. Anybody, I'm sorry, anybody do triathlons? Okay, so no crazy people here. All right. Um, now, you don't just go out and say, hey, I feel like doing a triathlon today. I don't know who actually want to say that, but anyway, there's people out there who say, I want to do a triathlon today. Well, if I feel like doing a triathlon today, I say, okay, here I go. What happens if I just 
decide this afternoon I'm ready to do a triathlon. I think I'm going to go run 26 miles, bike 120, and swim about three or four. What's going to happen to me if I can just go out and try to do that? I'm going to die, yes. <laughs> or at the very least, feel like I'm going to die. And odds are, I will not come anywhere close to that. If I walk 26 miles this week, I've done something pretty impressive as far as I'm concerned. What's necessary is to train first, to do the things that prepares and hones my body and my mind to be able to do these things. That's what training means. And so uh, Paul says here to Timothy that Scripture is good for the training that we need in righteousness. It's going to go about the business of shaping us, molding us, equipping us, putting our minds and our hearts and our spirits and our bodies into the space they need to be to actually do what? Be righteous and accomplish the purposes he set up for us. So that we may, verse 17, be adequate or able, capable of doing everything, every good work, anything God might want us to do, we'd be capable of doing it, to be equipped. So if we're interested this morning in being disciples of Jesus, of following him, and not simply being a spectator, or quite frankly, like, like many who wore the name Christian are, Students of religious history, because there's a lots of people who know about Jesus who don't follow him. And those are just students of religious history. They're not disciples. To be a disciple this morning means that I'm going to know the Scripture. One, because Jesus did, and I'm following him, I'm doing what he did. So since Jesus knew the Scripture, I need to know the Scripture, because that's what he did. And then secondly, I want to know what he, in fact, actually said what he wants from me, because that's what it means to be his disciples. So I'm going to not only do it because he did it, but I'm going to do it because I want to know what he said, what he did, how he did it, why he did it. I want to be able to, to know the Scripture because it's his word. Now, you may say this morning, as I've heard throughout the course of time and 30-something years in ministry, reading is so hard. I, I just, I'm just not much of a reader. I get it. Someone might even go, you know what, I'll do a little research, which is funny when someone who says they don't read says that. Oh, come on, that was funny. Just think about it. And they say, well, you know what, I, I know that most people throughout history weren't readers, that most societies don't know how to read, that the uh, the reading company, they, people just didn't read. They didn't read and write. In fact, there's huge portions of the world today that you go to. They don't know how to read and write, by and large. So how could they read the Scriptures? Well, here's what they do. Here's what Jesus' disciples often did. It wasn't that they just read it. Guess what they did? They heard it and memorized it. In fact, most of the oral cultures that even are in the world today, they can repeat back to you exactly what you say the day before. They've got that built, they've honed it over time because they don't read and write, so they know it's important to remember things. So you tell them this, and the next day they can recite it for you back word for word. So if you don't want to read because you don't like to read, here's your other choice. Here's someone quote it and memorize it. That's your two options. Either way, guess what? You find yourself knowing the Word of God. Knowing God's Word is not optional to be a disciple. I can't be a disciple unless I know the Word. If I try to follow Jesus, but I don't know what He actually said or did, who am I actually following? I'm following what I want Jesus to be, not who He actually was. 
To be a disciple of Jesus means to know His Word, to understand Scripture. Now, by the way, people misuse Scripture all the time. I saw this past week there was a, um, a state representative, I believe it is, in Virginia, who has proposed a bill or is proposing a bill that would make it a felony for parents of a child who believes they want to change their gender, whether they're 8 years old or 15, if that parent does not support that child and make it possible for that child to do that, the parents could be held together as abusers and felons. This is a bill being proposed in Virginia. In response to some pushback on this, she said this, well, the Bible tells us to just accept people the way they are. One, no, it doesn't. (laughs) It never says that. It says love your neighbor as yourself. That means to be as concerned for the welfare as you are for your own. So if you're hungry, when you're hungry, how concerned are you about getting something to eat? Pretty concerned? If you don't have a place to sleep, if you're in the rain, do you, are you pretty concerned about getting a place to, to shelter? Well, to love your neighbor as yourself means you're as concerned about their needs as you are yours. That's what that means. It doesn't mean to accept people the way they are. The Bible never actually says that. She doesn't know her Scripture. Now, here's the thing. A lot of sometimes Christians would hear that and go, well, yeah, she's right. You won't say that if you actually know what Scripture says. There are, of course, a number of easy examples for us to pick from. If I told you that Adam ate an apple, would I be correct in the Garden of Eden? Well, maybe he did. I don't know. I don't know if there were apples back then or not. But it wasn't eating an apple on the tree that got Adam in trouble. That's never even mentioned what fruit it was. It just says, don't eat of that tree. Here's another easy one coming up. How many wise men are there? Three. Name the verse. It's not there. There are three gifts. Never says how many wise men there are. It's amazing how quickly we easily we do that. Um, let, me, let, me, um, let me give you a couple more. Um, cleanliness is next to... Is that, is that in the Bible anywhere? Nope, it sure isn't. Um, by the way, it doesn't mean you shouldn't clean your room from time to time. But um, let, let, me get, let me get this one. God won't give you more than you can handle. It's not in the Bible anywhere. Now, God does say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that you won't be tempted beyond what you can handle. And by the way, it's a text of Scripture that's talking about idolatry. So in that context, He says you won't be tempted with that sin of idolatry more than you can handle. But He never says God won't give you more than you can handle. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Pretty repeatedly we're told that we can't handle it, and that's why we need God to come in and take care of it for us. Um, Let me give you another one. God works in mysterious ways. Never found in Scripture. Now, again, Isaiah says that God says, my ways are different than your ways, and my ways are higher than your ways. But this is just a general idea that God works in mysterious ways by itself. That quote's never found in Scripture. So if we don't know what Scripture says, we can, in fact, very easily and unintentionally be led astray. And understand, Satan and others will work very hard to do exactly that, to mislead us, to deceive us. 
one quick question on the end of this is, what do we, as disciples of Jesus, what do you and I use as a source of authority and information for our lives? Sometimes, if we're being honest, and we do need some help sometimes making decisions, we might use our own reason, our own ability to figure things out, and, there, and there's a place for that. I'm, we need to be able to be looking at stuff and using our brains to, to figure some things out, but understand there's limitations there. We need to be able to use our emotions. Yeah, God gives us emotions. That's sometimes part of decision-making. Sometimes traditions, sometimes experience. These things are all sources of information that may help us, but they're also all subject to deception. They're also all subject to misunderstanding. Guidance, truth, is found in the Word of God. It shapes everything else for the disciple of Jesus. In the end, we cannot be useful disciples, followers of Him, without knowing Scripture, without knowing what He has said, without knowing God's Word. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if right now, this morning, you think, well, I don't really know that much right now. Okay. Not knowing as much as you need to right now is not an excuse for failing to know more tomorrow. If you don't know as much as you need to know today, then what does that mean? It means read today. Read tomorrow. If you don't know that much about Jesus himself, or even if you're intrigued with the idea of reacquainting yourself with what Jesus did and what he said, let me just encourage you to do this. This week, try reading Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. I would encourage you to take one of those Gospels and read it all the way through like you would a book, like, a, like you would a novel. Don't just read three or four verses, but just read it through. Maybe over a couple sittings and read it through and do that a couple times. And you'll see things in there you might not have otherwise recognized. And then after you've done that, go back and reread it in smaller snippets and smaller bits. And what you'll do is you'll find things that are really worth knowing. You'll find one that's worth in doing that. You'll find one that's, in fact, worth giving your life to follow. To be a disciple means I am acquainting myself and knowing Scripture, knowing God's Word.